Well, this morning we are looking at a couple of different psalms. We're actually not going to look just at one psalm. We're going to look at two psalms, Psalms 42 and 43. And uh, I'm not doing that because I'm trying to impress anyone. I'm not trying to be an overachiever. Um, It's because uh, scholars uh, pretty much unanimously agree that these are two psalms that originally were one song. And you're going to recognize Psalm 42, especially I read just the beginning of it in the prayer just now. It begins famously as the deer pants for streams of water. And um, you you can't uh, read that line, of course, without thinking of the song, at least I can't. And so just for your pleasure, I've asked the band to sing extra refrains of As the Deer this morning following the service. So you're welcome and uh, something to look forward to. Um, In all seriousness, we're going to look at both these psalms because uh, these are psalms that speak directly to, I think, our present situation. Um, these are psalms that I, I've wrestled with for the past couple of weeks, and, and as, I've, as I've delved into them, what I find so resonates with my own heart. Someone who longs for God and yet struggles to find him in the midst of his circumstances. So if you would, just join me. We're going to dive into this. Psalm 42, we're going to start in verse 1. So uh, right before that, I'll tell you, this is a psalm that's written by the songs of Korah. This is not a psalm of David. Uh, There's a different one that sounds very similar, but this is one by the sons of Korah. They were uh, song uh, leaders in the temple, okay? And so this is what one of them writes, Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? And the psalm begins with this um, incredibly poetic and, and passionate, uh, dramatic even declaration of, of the psalmist longing for God. His soul pants for God. His soul thirsts for God. And, and yet presumably what we find here is that he can't, for whatever reason, he can't get with God. Do you see that? So his soul longs for God. He thirsts for God. And yet he asks this question, when can I go and meet with God? He can't get to God for whatever reason. The one thing that he longs for most of all in, 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 in all of the world to meet with God, and he can't. Uh, when I was um, about six or seven years old, I was um, with my parents traveling, and we went to this botanical garden in, somewhere in the deep south. Maybe it was Mississippi. It was a long time ago. I don't remember. And um, in this botanical garden, uh, there were no water fountains, I quickly discovered. And, and this is in the day when um, kids didn't have their own personalized water bottles, uh, my, my kids never leave home without their water bottles, uh, but back then we didn't, we didn't do that. And so I was uh, six or seven, I don't remember exactly how old, I'm walking around in the dead of summer in the sweltering heat, no water fountains, no water, and I have never been so thirsty in my entire life, up to that point or since. I mean, it was, it was all consuming. I was so thirsty. It was all I could think about. And not that I would have really enjoyed the scenery as a seven-year-old anyway, I mean, not that into botanical gardens at seven, but there was no chance I was going to enjoy any of the beauty of that place because all I could think about was how thirsty I was. And to make it worse, uh, my sister was uh, probably like two years old at the time, and she had a baby bottle that was filled with water. And not only that, but she didn't have to walk, she got to ride in the stroller. And I was so horribly jealous. And I remember thinking, I would do anything to get that water bottle away from her. And if my parents hadn't been around, I have no doubt, I would have taken that, and I would have drunk the water, and I would have felt so much better. But I, I, I couldn't take it from the two-year-old, and my parents wouldn't let me. And so I was so thirsty, it was all I could think about. It felt like life and death. Have you ever longed for something so deeply that it felt like you would die if you couldn't get it? 
Have you ever had something in your life that was so all-consuming? It was, it was what you thought about when you went to bed. It was what you thought about when you, when you woke up in the middle of the night. It's what you thought about when you woke up in the morning and, and all of your life was just directed towards this thing. It was your obsession that if, if you could just get that, somehow you knew it would fill this part of you that was unsatisfied. And so you just had to have that thing, whatever it was. Have you ever desired something? Have you ever wanted something, longed for something with that kind of intensity? And I wonder, have you ever longed for God like that? See, if I'm honest, um, for the longest time when I would read this psalm, um, I I didn't like it because I couldn't relate to it. I I couldn't understand it. You know, I I loved God and yet there was this this desperation to the psalmist's thirst here that I couldn't relate to. I couldn't couldn't understand. It didn't seem to the the experience that, that, that I experienced in my Christian life. You know, I wanted so badly to want God the way that the psalmist did. To want God with this, this thirst and this passion to say that my soul pants for God and yet that, was not, that wasn't something that, that I could say. And I don't think I'm the only one. I don't think I'm alone in that. See, I think we're thirsty. Absolutely, I think that we're thirsty, but we are thirsty. How do I put this? We're thirsty like someone sitting in a restaurant who wants a refill on their iced tea. Not thirsty like a seven-year-old in a botanical garden walking around under the sweltering sun. See, we're thirsty. We're just not, we're not that thirsty. So, about a year and a half ago now, um, I decided to start a new diet. And uh, my wife is cringing right now because she knows where this is going. And, and it drives her crazy because I'm one of those annoying people who finds a way to, to um, work intermittent fasting into every conversation now because I, I love intermittent fasting. It has completely changed my life. And, and uh, if you're not familiar with intermittent fasting, I, I, I won't try to pitch this to you, but basically it's a diet built around these set um, periods of time where you don't eat. Makes sense, right? It's fasting. And what I discovered is, and that's not important how it works, but here, here's what I found fascinating. As soon as I started fasting, not eating for periods of time, I felt this sensation that I hadn't felt in years. It was hunger. <laughs> because what I discovered was, and what I realized in reflection was that, that for the longest time, I had no, simply never felt hungry. And what I discovered was that I actually liked feeling a little bit hungry. It was good to feel a little bit hungry. I, I liked that, that craving sensation. I looked more forward to food more. In fact, I appreciate food more because I, I don't eat all the time. But for the longest time, I never felt hungry because if I had even the slightest inkling that I might at some point feel hungry, I would eat. I think that's how a lot of us approach our spiritual lives as well that as soon as we begin to feel even that the slightest dissatisfaction with life, the slightest unease or discomfort, that gnawing sensation of, of thirst, spiritual thirst, we, as quickly as we can, we try to find something to fill that void, something to stuff in there. 
And there's any number of things at our disposal. I mean, we have, we have TV shows that we can stream nonstop, thousands and thousands of cable shows. I don't have to, to give you all of the different ways that we can distract ourselves. And we, we give ourselves these, these quick and easy fixes. They're, they're all around us. I've got one in my pocket right here and it follows me around, literally. There's always something at my fingertips to, to quickly pacify and yet never satisfy the deepest thirst that I have. But see, the psalmist here, he won't play that game. Look at verse, back at verse 42, or Psalm 42 in verses two and three, he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? But notice what he says next. My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? See, the psalmist, he, he stays in this place of thirst. He has this, this spiritual thirst building up inside of him and he, he doesn't move. He's not like, okay, quick, what, what can I do or say or read or be or, or whatever? How do, I, how do I pacify that? How do I quench that thirst? Instead, he simply stays in it all day, day and night, every day. He doesn't wanna be distracted from his thirst. If, if he can't have the streams of God, then he'd rather feast on his tears. The great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he's reflecting on this verse and he writes this, the next best thing to living in light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy until we have it and to pant hourly after it. What Spurgeon's saying here is that the next best thing to, to finding our satisfaction in God, to finally being in the presence of God, when we can't find him, when we search, is to simply long for him even when we're distant from one another. When, when Carrie and I, um, Carrie and I back uh, many years ago, we were dating and um, we, we started dating in July. And by the end of August, I was uh, moving back over to Italy. I was, I was working over there at the time. And, and, uh, and so I was living in Italy and she was living in the States. And uh, for 11 months, 11 months we were apart and it was torture. It was awful. It was miserable because I really, really liked her. And I think she kind of liked me too. And, and, and it, was, it was awful, it was torture. And, and yet, and yet if, if, if one of my friends, okay, had come to me and said, Lucas, you seem so miserable. You seem so unhappy. You're just pining after Carrie all the time. And, and you're looking at her picture and, and you're calling her all the time and spending a fortune on international phone cards because we didn't have FaceTime, which kills me. Uh, even looking back, um, if they said, man, you just need to stop thinking about Carrie. Just, just forget her. Move on. I said, are you crazy? Of course not. I would never, ever do that because, yes, it was torture, but, but it was a sweet kind of torture. See, there, there's a bitter sweetness when you are separated from, from the one that you love that only intensifies your longing. When, when you love someone that deeply. Absence truly does make the heart grow fonder. See, that's, that's the kind of pain that you don't want relief from. And the psalmist here, he doesn't want cheap relief from his thirst. He'd rather feast on his sorrow until he can have God. Because he knows that the only thing that can hydrate his parched and brittle and dried out soul is God. Um, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I, um, I read this story in one of my grandmother's Reader's Digests. Some of you might remember Reader's Digest. I don't know if it exists anymore. 
But I read this story and, and it has haunted me um, ever since. It was a story uh, about this, this kid. He was just a little bit older than me at the time. He was 15, 16 years old maybe. And he, he took a 22 caliber rifle to school. This was before Columbine and, and before school shooting sadly became something that we're, we're all too familiar with. But he took it to school and thankfully no one was injured, but he did take for most of the day his teacher and uh, other students hostage. And when they came in to negotiate with him, they're trying to talk him down and, and he eventually did. He gave up the rifle and, and came out. And, and throughout this process, what, what, they, what they came to discover and what he just kept insisting was, well, all he really wanted, get this, all he really wanted was a boombox. It was a stereo. It was one of those that, you know, they used to carry around on their shoulder. It was that, that long ago. And that, that's all he wanted. He just wanted the stereo. That's all he wanted. And, and he couldn't get it. And somehow that led him in this act of desperation to take a rifle to school. And what the article asked and, and what they, they kept trying to piece together was how does this kid go from wanting a stereo to taking a rifle to school? Like, how do, you, how do you get from here to there? And, and yet, I'll never forget, even as I read it the very first time, my 13, 14-year-old self, I knew immediately. Like, I got it. I, there was something inside of me that whispered, this is the answer. Here, here's why he would do that. It's because he never actually wanted the stereo. He just thought he did. He, he thought he was after the stereo, but actually he was after something so much greater. He was after something else. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, um, Surprised by Joy, he, he describes these, um, uh, these moments in life when joy bursts in. Totally unexpected, totally um, inexplicable. He, he doesn't see them coming, but he's, he, he describes you know, walking into this garden and he has this memory of, uh, of being a child there and suddenly he's just overwhelmed with joy, this, this exuberance, this elation almost ecstasy, and he can't explain it. It's gone in a flash. And another time, he, he, he's reading something, and it fills his imagination with this idea that, that goes beyond the idea. There's something beyond that, and it, it, it fills his soul. And he's, he's just transformed in, for this moment. And then another time, he, he says he's reading this line of poetry and, and again, this joy breaks in. This almost ecstasy, and he can't, he can't explain why. But just for a moment, a flash, it breaks in. And so what Lewis, in, this, in his book, he begins to explore this. And, and he goes back and he, he says, I, he goes back and he begins to try to recapture those moments of joy. And what he discovers is that he can't. You know, you, you, he can't walk into the garden and, and find that again. He can find some happiness there, but, but that moment, that was something different. And he can read the same line of poetry again, but it doesn't have that same effect. And what Lewis ends up concluding is that, that all these things, okay, and I'm, I'm boiling this way down here, but what Lewis concludes is that all these things that we search for, and even the joy that we search for, they're actually just reminders. They're like placeholders, and they're pointing us to something beyond themselves, to something, to someone who is greater. And so what Lewis ends up saying is that God, 
God is the, the true and deeper desire beneath all of our other desires. Now, now in this, he's, he's really echoing Augustine in, in a lot of ways. So Augustine, um, what Augustine understood is that while contrary to popular belief, a lot of us tend to think that we are rational and, and thinking beings. What Augustine understood is that, that more than anything, we are desiring beings. That what makes us who we are isn't how brilliant we are or, or even the emotions that we have. Those can shape us to a certain extent and they can shape our desires, but it's actually our desires that drive us. Tell me what you love and I will tell you who you are. And so the problem then, and this is what, this is what um, Lewis and, and Augustine understood, is the problem isn't with our desires. See, a lot of times Christianity gets this, this bad rap and, and people think that God is, is against our desires. He doesn't want us to long too intensely or to love too intensely. He wants to dampen all of those things down. But what Augustine and Lewis understood is that our desires are good. Like they are built into us. The problem isn't our desires. The problem is that we so often misinterpret and misdiagnose those desires. We think that what we really want, what will truly make us happy is that new toy or that new relationship. And we see all these other things, good things, and we think that's it. That's what I need to finally feel happy. That's what I need to feel this joy again. But they're not. They're not. That God is what our hearts are truly thirsting for. Now here's why this is so important. This is why this matters for us today. Once you realize... Once you realize that your deepest longings to, to be something or do something or have something, that those are actually reflections of your greater desire for God, then those things don't control you anymore. They don't have to consume you anymore. Right? So whenever I find my heart beginning to be tugged in a particular direction, whenever I find uh, my soul thirsting after something, then the question that I ask myself is this, what is the need in my soul that I'm trying to meet with that other thing. I hope you're tracking with me. What, what, is, what is the need that I feel in my soul? Is it, is it love? Is it acceptance? Is it security? What is it that I'm really trying to get at? What is that need, that, that ache in my soul that I'm trying to satisfy that actually only God can satisfy? Because once I understand that God is the only one who can satisfy those things, then I can pursue them or not. They may be good, they may be bad, but they don't own me. They don't control me. And what's more, it means that I don't ask of those things more than what they can give. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I love my wife. I know you're glad to hear that. I'm glad that it's true. I love my wife and I love her intensely. Okay, but, but there's a way that I could love Carrie in an unhealthy way. If I love Carrie in such a way that I make her responsible for my happiness, that's one of the cruelest things you can do to another person. To say that you are the one who hold my happy, you're the key to my happiness. I love you so much, and so you, all of my happiness is dependent upon you. That's one of the cruelest things you can do to another person because they're never gonna be able to live up to that. But God can and so what that means here is that when, when God is my greatest joy, I can love my family. I can love my work. I can love all the good gifts that God gives to me without ever relying upon them, these good things, 
to be everything. Now, in some sense, everything that I just said, okay, everything up to this point, that's all just the prologue of the psalm. And so we're gonna go a little bit faster as we go forward here. But understand that that's all just the prologue. All that is just setting the table that this is a, a psalmist. This is written by someone. This psalm is written by someone who loves God with this kind of intensity. He longs for God and he knows that his thirst is for God, not any of these other things. And he refuses to be, to be pacified by anything else. He only will long for God until he's satisfied. And yet, even then, God still feels distance at times. And so what the psalm actually is, is a, essentially a quest by someone who longs for God to find God. And he starts here in verse four by reminiscing about a time when he's experienced God in the past. Okay, so verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Do, do you hear what he's saying? Did, did you catch this? What he's saying is, I wish that I could go to the temple. That, that's what he's saying. Look back at his question in verse two, remember? When can I go and meet with God? Remember, this is being written by the sons of Torah. They were the, the song leaders in the temple. And so very vividly, very literally, he's asking this question, when can I, I mean, he knows where he's gonna go meet God. It's in the temple. The question is, when can I go to the temple? When can I join in the multitude? to go worship God. See, for whatever reason, and some scholars think maybe he was in exile, something maybe he was sick. I like to think that he was in the middle of a global pandemic. We don't know, but for some reason, he can't go to church. But he longs to. He longs to. Charles Spurgeon, again, he writes this. He who loves the Lord loves also the assemblies wherein his name is adored. It were well if all our resortings to public worship were viewed as appearances before God. In other words, Spurgeon says that whenever we come together as, as the body of Christ, whenever we come together as the church, we should have this mindset that we're entering into the very presence of God. See, church isn't a club. And church isn't a social gathering. Church isn't even primarily family. When we come together as the body of Christ, we, we are God's people. We, we are the bride of Christ. There is a, a, a supernatural cosmic connection that we have as the, as the people of God. We experience God differently when we are together than when we are alone. And I don't have to tell you that. There, there is something different about watching a service on the TV or, or on your computer screen like, like all of you are right now than being here together. Gathered together to worship and to praise our God who reigns in heaven. What Spurgeon is saying and what the psalmist understood is that if you only practice a private individualized religion, your faith will be brittle and dry. Because the Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. Now, um, don't, don't read too much into my comments. Um, what I'm not saying here is that we should always gather together no matter what. I'm not making some sort of declarative statement like that. 
That's not my point, and, and that's certainly not the point of the psalm. In fact, the subtext of this psalm is an acknowledgement that there will be times when we can't gather together beyond our control. Maybe we're sick and we can't go to church. Maybe there's a pandemic and we can't gather together. The psalmist isn't making some sort of statement that this always has to happen. What he understands though is, and his point is, that it's in joining together for worship, that when we come together for worship, there's something different happening here. There's something supernatural that happens here. And that we should never take that for granted. And maybe before COVID, maybe we did. Just a little. You know, maybe, maybe before COVID, we might have assumed that gathering together was just always a given. That the church would always be open. We could always show up whatever Sunday we felt like going. There'd always be a good sermon to hear and music to listen to and to sing to and friends to see. And that's just what Christians do. And so we'd always be able to do that. And we took it for granted. But now, um, you know, after a few months, it's not just the friends we miss. We miss them too. We miss all of you. It's not just the sermons. It's not just the music. No, no, it's, it's more than that. What we miss is, is coming together and entering into the very presence of God as the people of God to worship and to praise him. Because part of what we've learned is that, that somehow God feels more distant when we're distanced from one another. And so the psalmist, he longs to be with God's people in the house of God, because he longs for God. He has a desperate thirst for God. He feels distant from God and he longs for God. And so he's, he's reminiscing about the past, about when he could join the multitude and he could walk into the house of God and they could all worship and praise together. He's, he's remembering these past, past spiritual highs, but, but if you keep reading, it's not enough. Verse five. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. See, he, he knows the right answer. Did you see that? He knows God is the one I need to be hoping him. I will praise him. He is my savior and my God. And yet he, it's still not enough. It's still not enough. He's still, his heart is still heavy. There's still this gnawing in his soul. Verse six, come to the next stanza. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to, under, to know exactly what he means by these geographical references. Um, at least one possibility here is that he's referring to, or he has in mind, uh, the source of the River Jordan. It was up in the mountain range that, that Mount Hermon was part of. And so what he's imagining is himself standing at the headwaters of the river. And these waves that are figuratively breaking over him of anguish and despair, countless waves crashing down, washing over him. But he says, even these, these waves, they belong to God who has allowed them, right? Did you see that? He says, your waterfalls, your waves, your breakers, they have swept over me. God allows them in order to drive him to seek the Lord. Verse eight, by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Even though he, he's being uh, beaten down by these waves, 
so to speak, God's love and his song, which refers to his creative and sustaining power. These, these things are ever present in his life, even when they feel distant. Verse nine, I say to God, my rock. See, he's still clinging to God. Even in the midst of all these swirling waters that are washing over him, he clings to God. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony. He, he's, he's in anguish. He's in pain. It, it's, it's spiritual and yet it almost becomes a physical a manifestation. As my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? This is the second time we hear this question asked. Both times by these people who are essentially taunting him. Where, where's your God? Where's your God? Things look terrible for you. You're depressed, you're in anguish, you're in despair. Everything's going wrong for you. So, so tell us, where is your God? See, when life isn't going as planned, or even when it's not outwardly, our outward circumstances, when it's internal, when we feel, for whatever reason, we feel this heaviness in our spirit, and we feel our, our hearts are, are in unrest, our soul is disturbed, to use his language, it's tempting to think that God has forgotten us. And so in this case, both the, the psalmist, he's even asking, God, have you forgotten me? Why am I going about in mourning? And so the psalmist and these people, they're essentially asking the same question. God, where are you in all of this? And his enemies ask the question in order to mock him, but he asks the question out of desperation. And yet, again, we see the psalmist, he refuses to give in to his despair. And in verse 11, we find the exact same refrain as before. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Even though he feels despair and sorrow, he is determined to hope in God, to praise him, even though he doesn't feel like it. Now we come to chapter 43, Psalm 43 and verse one, it continues. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Some translations here use ungodly people. I think that fits the context better. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why, why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? Again, he, he keeps crying out to God and he keeps questioning God in a sense. Like, why, where are you and why have you left me in this? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why am I in such despair? But now, as we move into verse three, there, there's actually a shift. Here, here's what you're gonna notice. Before he was questioning God, God, why haven't you done this? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why are you allowing these people to be unfair and unjust to me and to treat me like this? But now he asked God something different. He asked God to deal with him. Verse three, send your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with the harp, O oh God, my God. And finally, we come to the closing refrain, and it's the same as before, but this time it has a, it has a different tone. Verse five, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Despair hasn't won. In the end, he's not crushed. He asks the same questions. Why am I downcast? Why is my soul disturbed? But it's almost as though he's asking, soul, what do you think you're doing? 
Why why are you so downcast? If God is who he says he is, then I will put my hope in him. He is my savior and my God, and I will yet praise him. What I love about the psalm is that it's, it's not written by someone who finds faith easy. When you first read the first couple of verses, um, you know, he talks about his soul, his soul thirsting after God, a panting after God. And, and it would be easy to just think, wow, this guy loves God so much. He has such intense longing and desire for God. And so he, he must be all good. He must have it all figured out. Faith must be easy for him, but that's, that's not it at all. In fact, what we discover is a picture of someone who, who so desperately wants to experience God, to know God. And yet he struggles with doubt. There, there is this, this dark chasm of, of despair and dissatisfaction, disappointment, hopelessness. And he can't seem to find his way across to joy, to God. See, that's what all of us want. We all want to make that journey. And this struggle that he describes here of, of longing for God and yet struggling, trying to find God in the midst of all this, this is what I think so many of us, we can relate to this. I mean, right now, life... For so many of us, it's so messy. The world is so messed up right now. And nothing makes sense and, and nothing works. And we're, we're, we're sad and angry and burnt out and worn out and bitter. And maybe most of all, we're just, we're just tired. We're tired of a pandemic. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of being socially distanced. We're tired of having to think through all this stuff all the time. We're tired of, of trying to reimagine our lives and recreate the wheel with everything that we do, every part of life, everything from how we go to the grocery store or don't to um, everything, you know, all what our jobs look like, what church looks like, what spending time with our friends looks like, what educating our children looks like. We're, we're tired of dealing with all that. We're tired of the uncertainty and the instability. We're tired of the confusion. We're tired of all the rage. And we're just tired of being tired. And so we're struggling. And we struggle to make it through. There, there's this, this chasm of hopelessness and anguish and despair that we feel. Some of us very strongly, some of us, it just, it just gnaws at us. And we struggle to make our way through to the God who satisfies. And what we read here is, is the psalmist, he, he's tried a number of things. Right, he keeps trying to find his way and he reminisces about past spiritual highs and, and we hear, we listen in on this, this inner monologue where he tries to work out within himself like, like what he's feeling and, and how can he fix it and, and, and how can he deal with all of this? He tries to work it out inside of himself and, and, and none of this works. 
He still feels lost. Nothing changes for him until he asks God to do what? Look back at his prayer in 43, verse 3. He says, send forth your light and your truth. Before this, he's questioning God. He's arguing with God. Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Deal with all those other people. But now he, he asks for God for something very different. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. See, when he can't find his way, he asks God to send him light and truth to be his guide. See, we need light and truth to be our guide. We, we need light and truth because we need light to, to show us the way and we need our path to be true. If, if we're on the wrong path, it doesn't matter if our light is good. And, and if our path is the wrong one, it doesn't matter how well lit it is, we'll still wander off and we'll still get lost. We need both. And there is only, there's only one person who's both light and truth. There's only one guide. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the guide that we need. He is the light and the truth. He is the only one who can show us the way because he's been there before. See, when, when we find ourselves at this place that the psalmist does, when we find ourselves staring into this abyss and we're, we're at the, the precipice or maybe even in this dark chasm of despair and anguish and, and disappointment and hopelessness, all the rest of it, Jesus is the only one who can say, man, I've been there. In fact, he's traversed the, the deepest levels of that. He can say to us, I was the man of sorrows for you. I sweat blood in the garden for you. He can say that I have, I've journeyed down into the deepest chasm that there is, death itself, so that you could one day experience unspeakable joy. That when life feels so painful to the point that, that it's like our, our physical bodies are in anguish and you don't know how you're gonna survive the next day, Jesus is the only one who can say, I endured mortal and spiritual agony. I, I took on all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your despair and I, I took it with me into the grave so that your life would be spared. When we feel like God has forgotten or rejected us, as the psalmist prays here, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says the same prayer from the cross. Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? And he says that so that he can tell us that when you feel forgotten and rejected, oh, no, no, I was forsaken and rejected so that you, you could be remembered and accepted by God. That when we encounter people who are unjust and cruel, who taunt and mock us, that he's the only one who can say, I endured all of that and more so that you can know the love of God. And he's the one who, when we say, I am so thirsty, I'm so thirsty, like a seven-year-old in a botanical garden under the sweltering sun, I'm so thirsty. He's the one who can say, I will give you living water to drink. He's the one that we need. And it was always him. It was always him. All of our seeking, all of our thirst, all of our searching and our restlessness, all of our dissatisfaction with life, all of that, it was always him. He's the one our hearts thirst for. 
And if we will direct our thirst toward him, if we will see that he is the, the true and deeper desire beneath all of our other desires, then he will, he will lead us through. And it doesn't mean that it'll be easy. It doesn't mean that it happens immediately. But he will lead us through and he will be with us every step of the way because he's been there before. And even today, he is calling to us and he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and worn out and burnt out. And I will give you rest. He is the thirst quencher. He's the only one who can hydrate our souls. He is the one our souls long for. It was always him. Our Father, um, we long for you. And what's uh, remarkable is that even when we don't realize we're longing for you, we're still longing for you. We get so confused by all the other things that we think we want. All those things that we think will make us happy, that we think will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls, that will bring us joy but it was always you. This morning, Lord, we just ask that you would show, ourselves, show yourself to us. And Jesus, we look to you. You've already been there. You've walked this path. You are the only guide that we need and you're the only guide who can show us the way. Thank you that you promised to never leave us or forsake us. We thirst for you. We thirst for you. Our Savior and our God. Amen.